0: Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Welcome to Delivering the Gospel, Transforming Lives with Bill Neenhouse, President of Child Care Worldwide, a child sponsorship ministry transforming children's lives by exposing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's join Bill now as he opens us up with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us before the world began. God, we thank you for giving us your holy word. And through that word, we can learn more about your plan for us and apply that knowledge to our daily life. Lord, please be with us now and open our hearts as we go to your word. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Delivering the Gospel, Transforming Lives. I'm Bill Neenhouse. I'm the president of Child Care Worldwide. Our ministry focuses on delivering the gospel of Jesus to children throughout the world. We do this by creating a one-to-one relationship between Christians in America and kids in places like Kenya, Uganda, India, Sri Lanka, Peru, and Haiti. Today on the program, we'll reflect on the word of God, talk about transformation, and bring you up to date on some of the things we're involved with at Child Care Worldwide. I pray that the time we have together today will be a blessing to you. During Jesus' ministry on earth, he spent a lot of time explaining the kingdom of God to people he encountered. Sometimes he spoke plainly, and other times he communicated in parables. He used stories to paint pictures in the minds of his listeners in order for the truth to break through to them. He used the word of God as his authority when speaking with the people. Let's consider this as we look at his word today. We will begin in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited but few are chosen. Verse 1 through 14 talks about the parable of the wedding feast. An invitation is extended to the wedding feast, but the guests do not come. A second invitation is given, and not only rejected, but the guests kill some of the messengers. The king responded by killing all of those who killed the messengers, and then he burned their city. A third invitation was given, but the original guests were not worthy. So the king sent out his servants to gather good and bad people from the streets. Let's talk about the meaning of this parable. The king in the parable is God, and the son is Jesus, and the banquet is the marriage supper of the lamb. The messengers are the initial preachers of the gospel, and the first guests invited were the Jews. But the guests who did not come are the castaways and the destitute. Think about this. The guests were invited, but they chose not to come. They refused the invitation. This is still happening today, you know. Many people are invited but refuse the invitation and give all sorts of reasons why they can't accept the invitation to trust Jesus as their Lord. In verse 11, the king speaks to a man who doesn't have the proper wedding clothes. The king is upset because the man accepted the invitation, but on his own conditions. The wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ. We cannot come to the marriage supper of the Lamb on our own terms. We can't come and say, well, I've lived a pretty good life, and I've been kind, and I've been very giving to many people. To a holy God, that's like presenting ourselves to Him dressed in filthy rags. We must come dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We must come knowing and believing in what Christ has done for us, and knowing that this belief is the only way to heaven. We cannot get there based on our own merit. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was teaching and performing miracles, which would lead to his rejection by the Jewish authorities. Jesus is in a confrontation with the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees did not believe the scriptures concerning Jesus being the Son of God. They were expecting a noble, grandiose king, a king surrounded by luxury. They couldn't fathom that Jesus, a simple carpenter from Nazareth, would be their Messiah. They were not willing to believe this humble teacher was their king much less the Son of God. They interpreted their Jewish decrees through the lens of the Mosaic Law. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious leaders were jealous of Jesus. Jesus spoke to and associated with all people, even tax collectors, while the Pharisees would never do that. The Pharisees were afraid of losing their position of power and authority. They simply couldn't have all people following Jesus instead of them. Jesus exposed the Pharisees for believing they were better and more righteous than anyone else because they believed they could keep the law perfectly. In Matthew 23, verse 27 through 28, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within you, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. At various times, the Jewish leaders attempted to ambush Jesus by asking him questions they thought would trip him up. They tried to set a trap for him so that it could throw him in jail. They listened to his parables, not to learn from them, but to use them against him. In Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. The Pharisees asked Jesus if it was right to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus responded to this question with, why are you trying to trap me? He asked them to show him a coin, and the coin had a picture of Caesar on it. Jesus pointed out the picture and asked the obvious question, whose portrait is this? And then told them to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Jesus was telling them that Caesar was in a position of authority, and that they must obey him. But they also need to obey God. This hasn't changed. Even today, we must obey our civil authorities, whether we agree with them or not. And yet, above all, we must remain loyal to God and be obedient to him. The Sadducees tried again to catch Jesus with his words when they questioned him about whom a woman should be married to after the death of her brothers. Matthew 22, verse 23 through 33 says, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, His brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees wanted to know, since the woman was married to all seven men, whose wife would she be at the resurrection? The Sadducees were considered to be the elite of their society. They were part of wealthy families who bore high priests. In their religion, they would not consider anything but the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. They did not believe in the resurrection or in the promise of eternal life. This is why they chose to ask this question. More importantly, Jesus knew all of this and he knew that they were trying to trap him. Jesus responded with, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Since Jesus knew what the Sadducees believed, this was the way he chose to respond. He didn't specifically answer the question about whose wife she would be, but rather he stated, yes, people will be in heaven. Not only that, but he added the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living in heaven too. Now let's address yet another attempt by the leaders to discredit Jesus. Jesus knew the Pharisees were hypocrites and called them such. Jesus knew they were not able to fulfill the law because they were, just as any human, filled with sin. We know the only person who kept all of the commandments was Jesus himself. The Pharisees actually believed the commandments could be ranked and that they actually could be put in order of the most important to the least important. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40 say Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus was teaching the scriptures in the temple, but the goal of the Pharisees was to challenge, discredit, and jail him. Imagine someone speaking directly to Jesus trying to discredit him and not believing he is the Son of God. Can you imagine witnessing that conversation? Listen again to Jesus' response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Moses spoke to the Israelites, telling them the very same thing that we are reading here in Matthew. How would any of us have defended ourselves against the Pharisees? Would we have gotten angry, frustrated, indignant? would we have taken a how-dare-you-ask-me-that-question attitude? The way Jesus chose to defend himself was not to yell at the Pharisees, nor did he argue and tell them that the commandments were not handed down by God to be numbered and put into order of greatest to least or least to greatest. Instead, he chose these words from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and gave a very clear and precise answer. We are to love God wholeheartedly, emotionally, intellectually, and with every fiber of our being. Make no mistake, this is our directive. We are to love God with everything we have. Notice the language that's used in Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus didn't say, Well, I think you should, or perhaps you could, or, well, how about this suggestion? He didn't say any of those things. His words were exceedingly clear. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. We are not commanded to love God partially, or only on the days we feel good, or when we remember to pray to Him for something. We are commanded to love God wholeheartedly. Jesus commanded that loving God is the highest priority we have. That's why He said it was the greatest and the first commandment. Above all else, We need to love God wholeheartedly and unconditionally. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 22, verse 39, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does this verse sound familiar? It should, because we find it in Leviticus chapter 19. It says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in Matthew 7, verse 12, we find something very similar. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Jesus is telling us how to interact with one another. How are we to love our neighbor as ourselves? Loving our neighbors is tied directly to our relationship with God. First of all, we need to love God wholeheartedly. And when we do, the result should be obedience to what he commands us to do. And he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. All of us want to be treated with respect, integrity, and mercy. Therefore, we should treat others the same way we want to be treated. We should love our neighbors the same way we want to be loved. This is what Jesus commands. Matthew 22 verse 40 says, The entire law and the demands of all the prophets are based on these two commandments. What Jesus is trying to get across here is that we cannot grade the commandments. We cannot put any of them in any ranked order, from greatest to least or least to greatest. The law and the teaching of the prophets are based on two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. What a profound yet clear command this verse gives us. Let me read it just one more time. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40 says, Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Simply put, love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbor. Now finally, let's look at the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees. Matthew 22 verses 41 through 45 say, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, Well, then how is it then David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on no one dared to ask him any more questions. Bible scholar D.A. Carson comments on this verse. He says, Having silenced his opponents, Jesus now poses a question himself. Whose son is the Messiah? In Psalm 110, verse 1, David, the king and highest human authority in Israel, speaking under inspiration, declares, The Lord says to my Lord. The first Lord is naturally God. But who else is above David except the divine Messiah? Those who argue that the Messiah must merely be an earthly descendant of David cannot explain how David can call him his master. Given Matthew's general interest in Jesus as the son of David, this passage is extremely important, drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is someone greater than David. Not a lot has changed in our world today. People will not acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior and Messiah. Instead, they turn to their own set of beliefs. Jesus must be our foundation and our rock to stand on. Therefore, if you have anyone questioning your beliefs, turn to your foundation the infallible Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your Son Jesus stood on your Holy Word as his defense. Help us to always turn to your infallible Word and help us to be strengthened by it. We pray this in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Our Child Care Worldwide Country Directors serve in many areas of the world, and like those of us in America, they too have been confronted with COVID-19. Carolyn Lydia is our director in Chennai, India. I asked her to give us a sense of what life's been like on the southeastern coast of India during the pandemic.
1: Carolyn? Hi, this is Carolyn here. I'm the executive director of Help the Children India, a unit of childcare worldwide, Bellingham. I'm working here for the past four and a half years. I'm here to speak on the situation here in India since the appearance of COVID-19. First of all, I would like to speak on how it has affected me personally, confining ourselves within the four walls and doing our day to day activities have been a herculean task. All the outdoor activities that we decided to do has been handicapped and uh, all the essentials that we want to purchase, we purchase only based on what is available in the market and not what we require because there's a delay in stock arrivals. And uh, even the vegetables for that matter, the groceries and everything, everything, everything that are available, whatever is available, we are forced to purchase that. The uh, doctor's visit, that's another thing that, that is majorly affected. In fact, my daughter, uh, she is uh, due for vaccinations. It hasn't happened so far because the clinics are are all closed. And speaking about the staff, we speak on the video call and if need be and use WhatsApp. So all this technology has helped us so far to to able to work from home. And then speaking about the pastors, in fact their only source of income is basically the offerings that they receive on a weekly basis in their respective churches. But since now we don't have any gatherings of the church, their source of income is also affected and they find it hard to run their family. I would say that all the sections of the society have been affected in one way or the other. The lower section of the society is the most affected. And uh, the, of course, the middle section of the society, where people run a small scale business like uh, hotels, restaurants, and then uh, uh, cake shop, bakery, uh, all the footwear shops, okay, all these people also earn a, a daily income or a weekly income based on which they run their family. And right now, it's affected a lot and even meager workers like uh, auto drivers people who run transport business they are affected in a large way so all these uh, also almost all sections of the society have an impact of this covid-19 and we request all of our all of your prayers uh, especially for this indian economy and uh, pray especially for our leaders uh, who you know to know christ and also to have the fear of God in them and uh, pray for all the superstitious beliefs that are happening and we are given some tasks based on some Hindu rituals Uh, so all these things uh, we need to pray for we should feel uh, we are in fact really burdened on the situation that is in right now Uh, they should have the fear of God in them and uh, we also also request you to pray for uh, the government to implement many fund relief measures uh, without without any bribery, of course, uh, and uh, the leaders also to work for the welfare of all the people in the society and with answer of a good conscience toward God. Thank you, one and all. Thank you.
0: God Almighty, I pray for all our children in Chennai, India, for our Director Carolyn, for the doctors, teachers, pastors, and for the leadership. I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to open their hearts to you. I ask that you convict them of their sin, draw repentance, and welcome them into your family. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was visiting some of the sponsored children of child care worldwide in Africa, I was struck at the work they had to do on a daily basis. Some had the responsibility of taking care of the younger children in the household because mom or dad had to go to work. All too many times, though, there was just only a mother or a grandmother or maybe just a sibling in the house because parents had either left or passed away, leaving the children to take care of themselves. These precious children had chores to do every single day, and they didn't have a choice because the livelihood of the family depended on it. For example, it was always the job for one of the children to go fetch water every single day. If there was no water, they wouldn't be able to cook or drink anything. So you can understand that water is vital on a daily basis and these families do not have the luxury of turning on a tap and feeling hot or cold water. For other children, it may be their job to gather vegetables from the garden. If they don't gather the vegetables from the garden, then they don't eat for that day. Maybe their job is to go to work every day and if they don't go to work, then they don't get paid. And if they don't get paid, then they won't have enough money to buy or grow food. My point here is that these are just children. These kids should be going to school. They they should be playing. They, They should be going to church. They should be going to their closest life center, which is held at a church, and memorizing God's word. But these children are working, and they're working so they can live. Their lives depend upon their job. They need an opportunity to stand on the solid foundation of God's word. But their life circumstances dictate something very different. Can you sponsor kids today? Visit childcareworldwide.org to find out how you can sponsor a child. When you do sponsor a child for only $40 a month, you're giving them the opportunity to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. You're giving them an opportunity to be a kid. When a child is sponsored, they go to a life center held at a church. It's there that they get fed the life-giving word of God and they get to drink the water that will never make them thirst again. The Word of God is powerful, isn't it? It's life-giving and life-changing. To find out how you can sponsor a child, visit us at childcareworldwide.org. Thanks for listening to Delivering the Gospel, Transforming Lives. I'm Bill Neenhouse. I really appreciate you showing up every week and listening to our program. It is delightful to have you with us. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to Delivering the Gospel Transforming Lives with Bill Neenhouse, President of Childcare Worldwide. To learn more, go to childcareworldwide.org. Join us again next week here on 8:20 a.m., The Word.